The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, thank you again, our servants of music. Now we have the privilege to continue in our worship uh, to God, our great God, by hearing from Him, literally. And the way we hear from God today is through the Bible, through Scripture, through His Word. That's what we believe. That's what Jesus promised, that his apostles and faithful servants would write down the teachings he wanted us to know, and through God's providence, that truth would be preserved for the church throughout history. It's been 2,000 years, and God has fulfilled that promise and has preserved his word, what he wants us to know, his very thoughts, so we can actually read them in Scripture. Amazing. So there's no question or ambiguity or mystery about what God thinks about things or how God interprets history and what actually happens. So we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 26. Today's sermon title is Paul's Testimony to Agrippa, which is a follow-up from a couple weeks ago when we were introduced to who King Agrippa was. Before we get to Acts 26, if you have a Bible, I'd uh, like you to turn to 1 Peter 2. And then while uh, you're turning there, 1 Peter 2, instead of uh, children's church, we have children's choir, yes, practice today? Is it fifth grade on down as usual, or all the kids? Okay, well, if you if you know you're a part of the choir, children, it's time to rehearse. Go ahead and follow Mr. Thompson, our children's choir director, and y'all, I guarantee you're going to have a blessed time. And we are looking forward to that treat when we can hear you sing. Always a highlight of the year. All right, so let's look at first... Peter 2, <clears throat> we'll start at verse 13. I'm reading this kind of background in light of where we have been in the book of Acts. Paul is nearing the end of his ministry. He's been a Christian 20 plus years. He's had three very significant major missionary journeys, traveling the Gentile world, preaching the gospel wherever he goes, planting churches, raising up church leadership, making disciples, also receiving scripture on occasion from Almighty God and writing it down through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, traveling with faithful ministry partners for the most part, all the while finding resistance and hostility at every stop along the way for 20 years. Jesus promised him that. Preach the truth for me, be my witness, but you're going to find resistance. Significant resistance. He's lost his life, just almost lost his life several times. Been beaten, thrown in prison. He even writes down the details of that in Corinthians and other places. So he's nearing the twilight, the end of his ministry. And where we've been in the book of Acts, since around Acts 22-23, is Paul came to Jerusalem at the end of his ministry to bring a gift of money to the saints in Jerusalem, the church there. And he was in the temple area doing worship, legitimately so, as a believing Jew in broad daylight in the temple. And then some Jews who did not believe in Christ, who found out Paul was there, who hated Paul and hated Christians and because they hate Jesus, just pounced on him and, and called the, all the crowds to come and basically try to kill Paul. And so they're literally beating him to death. 
right there in broad daylight in the temple grounds, and that's where it picked up. And then the Romans came and intervened, and a Roman soldier grabbed him. What's going on? And then they ended up throwing him in prison. Don't even know what he did, who he is. They throw him in prison. And it's been two-plus years now, and Paul has been in jail ever since for doing what? Nothing. He's already been declared innocent or not guilty several times, formally by those in charge. And he's still been... So he's been in prison for over two years. He was moved from the jail or the prison from Jerusalem to Caesarea on the coast by the Mediterranean Sea, about 60 miles away from Jerusalem, where Herod's palace was, King Herod, who was now dead, massive, compound, palace there, where the governor of Rome lived. First it was Felix. We met Felix, and then he was gone, got replaced. And the next governor that came along was Festus. So Festus is the ruling governor of this area, living in the palace in Caesarea, Herod's old palace, just a palatial mansion. And then down below, they have Paul locked away in a prison, I guess, or something in the basement. And Paul's been there for over two years. And Festus is a governor representing Rome, and he's trying to figure out what to do with Paul. We saw Felix, the governor before him, didn't do the right thing with Paul. Felix concluded that Paul wasn't guilty, but kept him in prison anyway to appease the Jews that he feared, the Jews that hated Paul. So there was no justice from Felix, but he was the governing authority. And then Festus is now the governing authority. And now, Paul, we introduced uh, Agrippa, King Agrippa, last time. He was kind of a half-Jew, independent of Festus by way of ruling. He was kind of an autonomous ruler appointed by the emperor to rule in Palestine, certain sections, the Galilean area and other jurisdictions, even the temple area down there. So that's Herod Agrippa. And so now Paul is going to give testimony before Herod Agrippa today, but all this is introduction in light of 1 Peter 2 because now Paul is going to give testimony and stand before the authority of a Roman governor and a quasi-Jewish king. And in light of that, read 1 Peter 2. Peter wrote this epistle around the 60s. So Peter probably wrote this shortly after Paul actually had the following experience in Acts 26. And here's what Peter said to Christians who are being persecuted. Hey, Christians that are being persecuted by a pagan government, submit yourself to the Lord's sake to every human institution. There it is. Submit to the government. To the Really? The pagan, corrupt, compromised government? Yeah, submit to that one. Submit to the government. Submit to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority. So that's going to be King Agrippa for Paul. He was corrupt. His, his father was corrupt. His father, King Agrippa's father, killed one of the apostles, James, and tried to kill Peter and all the other apostles. He was a bloody murderer, bloodthirsty murderer. That was Agrippa's father. And Paul has to now stand in front of Agrippa II. And Herod Agrippa's grandfather was Herod the Great. He was the worst. He tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was a baby. There was no one more notorious than Herod the Great. And so here is Herod Agrippa in that family line of just brutal, murderous, unjust thugs who have, for the most part, utter disregard for truth and morality and justice. And yet Peter says... Submit yourself to every human institution, whether to a king, 
like Agrippa, who was immoral, verse 14, or to governors. There it is. And so Paul has to do both of these. Submit to Agrippa at this testimony he's going to give, this hearing, really, in a formal setting. And then, so he needs, his attitude needs to be submit to the immoral Herod Agrippa, and you also need to submit to Festus, who's already hasn't given Paul justice. The compromiser we've seen. Wow. That's a high calling. That's actually an impossible calling from a human point of view. The only way that Paul could possibly submit to and honor this requirement in front of unjust, human, compromised, self-centered rulers is a supernatural infusion of power from God Almighty through His Holy Spirit. That's the only way. And and Paul's going to do it. Paul is exemplary. So submit to corrupt kings, uh, submit to governors... How did Herod get to power? How did Herod Agrippa was totally immoral, but yet he was in power. He had authority. And then here's Festus. He's also compromised, yet he has authority. How do these guys get into power and authority? I mean, we could say that about a lot of rulers in our day, all over the world. There are so many corrupt rulers. All over, there's like 295 nations, and the majority of those nations are ruled by totally corrupt, mostly dictators. And yet, this is what God requires. So Paul's going to be a model of this, of this for us. So submit to the governor, Festus. Submit to the king, Herod Agrippa. Why are they there anyway? Well, God had an intent in verse 14. God put people in the position of king and governor, verse 14, sent by God for the punishment of evildoers. That's what they're supposed to be doing. What is a governor supposed to do? He's supposed to provide justice by punishing evildoers and then protecting the innocent. And that's what kings are supposed to do. That's what governors are supposed to do. That's what our government is supposed to do and governments around the world. God established government, and it's very clear. They're not supposed to provide you a public education for free. That's not in God's description of what rulers are supposed to be doing. It's not even in the U.S. Constitution. It's real simple. Keep the peace. Maintain civility. Protect the innocent. Pursue justice. Implement justice. Safeguard the law. Punish evildoers. Well, and then Christians need to have that perspective. So let's go to Acts 26 now. And let's look at Paul, who's been in jail for two and a half years. He could, he could complain. He could go, you know, right to the ACLU and ask him, uh, my rights are being violated and have been for two years. Where are you? I need a lawyer. He never did that. What is he doing? Well, he's trusting God throughout this whole thing. Taking a long time. Wow. Is he even going to get justice? That's the question. But Paul is exemplary. By the way, Paul wrote uh, a truth parallel to what we just read in Peter in the book of Romans. Paul has already written his version in Romans 13. So Paul knew this truth. He wrote it. He was led by the Spirit of God to write it down. And so Paul has to actually practice what he preached. And he does. It's amazing. He, he's not stirring up a revolt or trying to ask his buddies to sneak him out of prison. Just a wonderful model example for us. So let's go ahead back to Acts 26. We're going to look at Acts 26. Uh, we've got verses 1 through 32. I'm actually going to go through all 32 verses. It's a big chunk because it can't be divided up. It's one testimony. Paul stands up and he gives testimony before Herod Agrippa. And you, I don't think you can just divide it up. You'll lose the continuity of what Paul was saying. So that's why we're going to read the whole thing. It's a narrative. And we'll just follow along, section by section, 
thematically is God's Spirit moves on the Apostle Paul, leading him as to what he should speak on behalf of Almighty God. As he's led by the Spirit, it's absolutely amazing. Just by way of reminder, we saw in Acts, the setting in Acts 25, uh, verse 14 and following, Acts 25, Festus has already heard Paul's testimony very briefly. It, about a couple of sentences is all Paul managed to get out. And then Festus, okay, all right, I'm done. I heard what I wanted to hear. I heard from Tertullus, uh, the prosecution. I heard from you, Paul. He didn't know what to do. He could not figure out why the Jews hated Paul so much, wanted him arrested, wanted him killed. Because Festus didn't know anything about Jewish religion, didn't know Jewish law. So he's at a loss. And then Paul's a Roman citizen, and he says, I appeal to Caesar. When Festus wanted to take Paul and send him back to Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin, the ones who wanted to kill him, Paul says, no way, I am not going to do that. I appeal to Caesar, I'm a Roman citizen, I have that right. And then Festus, hmm, yeah, you know what, you're right. So uh, that's where we left off, where Festus honored Paul's request to appeal to Caesar. That'd be like appealing to the king of the nation or the president of the United States or the highest uh, authority in the land, Supreme Court or whatever, I appeal, and he was allowed to do that. And so being that he appealed and his appeal was granted, the next thing that should happen is Paul should be sent to Caesar himself to have a hearing. But that isn't what happens. In the meantime, he, he is subjected to this quasi-trial testimony hearing where he's going to be put before someone else, this half-Jewish king named Agrippa. So that's our context here. The year is about 59 A.D. Um, like I said, Paul's probably got seven or eight years left of his ministry. Been in prison for two years there in Caesarea. And let's go ahead and look. at I divided this into uh, one, two, three, four, five sections to help us flow through the text. And we'll just take it kind of a paragraph at a time telling this story. This is true history. This is amazing. As you read through the book of Acts, one of the refreshing things or great reminders about going through the book of Acts is we intersect with so many uh, geographical locations that are important, uh, historical figures that are important and undeniable. Uh, for example, Herod here, Agrippa, uh, a Roman Gentile governor named Festus, and before him, Felix. These are actual real historical figures. You can go into a secular encyclopedia and find out about all these characters, which totally dismisses the allegation that People who are ignorant say about the Bible, oh, it's just filled with myths and fairy tales. No, it's not. And I would say the book of Acts is one of the greatest examples that we are dealing with true history, irrefutable, inerrant, authoritative history, the book of Acts. And there are some landmarks, uh, time markers throughout Acts that are absolutely significant, rock solid, that give us a chronology. For example, we're dealing with Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, the second. We know when he lived. We know when his father died, 44 A.D., Herod Agrippa I, Acts chapter 12. That's undeniable in terms of history, secular history even. 44 A.D., we know that Herod Agrippa II, who's in Acts 26 right now, was 17 years old when his dad died. He was going to take over, but he was too young, so that was deferred by first the Caesar Claudius and then later Nero, who would become Caesar, and they gave him a little bit of power and rule incrementally as he grew older. So at age 17, was given minimal responsibilities. Now in Acts 26, Herod Agrippa II is now 32 years old. And he's assumed a lot more authority and power. 
He has assumed the authority and power over the region of Galilee. He's assumed authority and power over the temple in Jerusalem, over running the temple, the priests in the temple, uh, designating who the annual high priest would be in the Jewish religion. It's amazing the authority that he had at this time, Herod Agrippa. We know from history he was uh, a great intellectual. He was very intelligent. He knew all the nuances of the Jewish religion. He knew the prophecies of the Old Testament. He was highly informed, highly educated. Really, if you study him, he's a Renaissance man. It's pretty impressive in terms of his intellectual capabilities and what he knows about the Jewish religion. That's Herod Agrippa II. The other thing about him is his character. He is morally bankrupt. He is an adulterer, just like all of his uh, relatives were. His wife is actually his sister, so that's incest, condemned by the Old Testament he professes to believe in. That's just one example. So this is Herod. So let's go ahead and look at Paul's testimony. When he's supposed to be being sent to Caesar, now Festus... Oh, by the way, so why is Paul appearing before King Agrippa II? Because Festus couldn't... He's going to send Paul to Caesar. Caesar, here's a prisoner, and he needs to go to trial, and his offense is... um, And Festus couldn't think of anything. So he's in a panic. I can't do that. So maybe this Jewish king, Herod, can help me out. So I'll have Paul listen to King, uh, Paul talk to King Agrippa, and then King Agrippa can tell me a charge I can write down to give to Caesar. So that's the purpose of this testimony. It's kind of a hearing. It's not really a trial. It's a hearing. So that Festus can write something down and then send him off to Caesar and wash his hands clean. And we also learned in Acts uh, 25 earlier that the setting was right there at the palace in Caesarea and in one of the massive, uh, they were using it as a courtroom and there was all kinds of pomp and circumstance and there were prominent men from the city, whoever they were, and no doubt some prominent Jews who hated Paul that were allowed to be in the courtroom. Uh, And then there were assistants to Herod and his wife and they had military leaders along with them and generals, so it's maybe a pretty significant massive audience. And it's all a show. The Greek word used there, uh, fantasia. It was all just one big fantasia. And Festus was doing this to impress Herod the king who was visiting. And then there's old prisoner Paul. He doesn't have anybody representing him in his prison clothes and shackles. And the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God takes over. So let's go ahead and look at it. So here's Paul's testimony to Agrippa. So Festus, uh, at the end of chapter 25, says, okay, I brought Paul before you, so maybe you guys can help me figure out what is wrong with this guy, why he's on trial, and what I should say to Caesar. Okay. So Agrippa agrees. So Agrippa sits down kind of at the tribunal. He's got his wife-slash-incestuous sister with him and all of his entourage. And then Paul is brought out before them probably standing there to give testimony the entire time in front of this typically intimidating group of authoritative people. And then Agrippa says to Paul, so Agrippa's running the show now. So point number one is really a look at, so really we're going to look at how Paul handles himself throughout this testimony or this scrutiny from these godless people 
and these false charges that are very severe. Chapter 25, it said very severe charges were brought against Paul, that if he were to be found guilty, it warranted the death penalty. That's how serious it is. So does Paul fold? Does he panic? Does he collapse? Does he lie? Does he compromise? How does Paul conduct himself? It's amazing. Luke 12, Jesus promised he would be with his people, especially the apostles, in times of duress, in a situation just like this. Jesus said, do not worry. And Jesus' promise is fulfilled. So first, Paul, so Paul's going to give his testimony in this whole chapter. And the first thing we see about Paul is he starts out by giving his history. Giving his history to let Herod know where he comes from. Because the charge has already been brought against Paul to King Herod from Festus. Actually, the Jews who hated Paul, their accusation was that Paul is a troublemaker. He's a false cult leader. He deviated from the true Jewish religion. He really doesn't represent Judaism. He's not one of us. He doesn't belong a part of the Sanhedrin. He's nothing but a divisive troublemaker. And he needs to be shut down and silenced. And he disturbs civility and order. And Rome doesn't like that. So you Roman authorities need to shut him down. Because he doesn't properly represent true Judaism. That was their main argument. He's not a true Jew. He's not Jewish. He's a a weird sectarian of a cult figure. That's what they've been arguing for years now. And that's the first thing Paul deals with. No, I am a true Jew. That's why it's Paul's history. Paul is very specific, very strategic, very logical in how he proceeds and in what he's... He's very careful on a human level about what he's going to say. His mind was amazing. He was the greatest intellect. He also knew the scripture, coupled with the fact that he is being led now by the Spirit of God of what to say. Absolutely profound. So verses 1 to 8 is Paul's history. This is how he begins his testimony. And it really is a testimony. That's why he's giving his defense. Your testimony can be one of the greatest defenses you can give as a Christian. Whether you're on the street talking to an unbeliever, being harassed or attacked by one of your relatives at Thanksgiving. And you can't remember all those facts and all that Bible verse and I don't have it memorized and how did that great evangelist. Man, just start giving your testimony. I was blind and now I see. That's what Paul does. Powerful. So listen to his testimony. Agrippa gives Paul the floor. Verse 1. Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand. This is the third time Acts notes that. Could be that Luke was in the courtroom and saw that. And that's why Luke writes it down. And when somebody is about to speak and they put out their hand, you know what I think of? The imagery there. I mean, this is body language. This matters. This makes it. This is saying something. Paul stretches out his hand. This is not someone who is timid or afraid or cowering or doesn't have anything to say or who can't think straight. (laughs) Paul is ready. It's like he's either in preaching mode or he is giving the king due respect. Fulfilling 1 Peter 2. Paul stretched out his hand upon the words of Agrippa. Thank you, King Agrippa. I will gladly do so. So Paul's being energized by the Spirit of God as the Spirit is giving him supernatural courage and clarity. So Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his apologia, his defense, and it's on a very personal level, his testimony. And so Paul begins in verse 2, in regard to all these things of which I am accused by the Jews, the Jews who don't believe in Jesus, the Jews who set me up two years ago, the Jews who wanted to kill me several different times and tried to, I consider myself fortunate. I consider myself joyful, says one translation. I consider myself pleased and happy. 
really? King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today. That, that kind of blows my mind when I first read that studying because Paul knew because he used to be, he grew up in Jerusalem, trained there. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. He knew the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the high priests. He knew who the Herods were and what they did. He knew their story. They reigned supreme in Jerusalem and over its religion. No doubt Paul knew that Herod Agrippa's dad murdered one of the apostles. No doubt Paul knew that Herod Agrippa's grandfather tried to kill Jesus, his savior. No doubt Paul maybe knew that Herod Agrippa II was completely immoral. And nevertheless, he says, I am, I consider myself fortunate and I have great joy, King Agrippa, that I am able to make my defense before you today. Was Paul bluffing? Was Paul trying to schmooze him? Was Paul trying to manipulate him? No. <clears throat> Paul's speaking truth with integrity. He's being very specific. And he tells us why he's happy that he has King Agrippa to testify to. Verse 3, especially because you, here's why. I don't like everything about you, King Agrippa. He wasn't saying that. But here's why, very specific. You are an expert in all customs and questions about the Jews. And that was true. In other words, I have been dealing with and subjected to these pagan Roman governors like Festus and Felix and Claudius, the commander, who don't know anything about Judaism. And I had to go to trial before them and they couldn't sort anything out. And that's why I am still in jail unjustly. But you know Judaism all the nuances and the in, uh, intricacies and the idiosyncrasies. And it was a weird religion from the perspective of the world. Very different. And Herod, he was a master of all of it. So Paul's thinking, man, finally I got somebody, an informed judge. Somebody who knows the big picture and also the details in order to render a legitimate and just decision. And this was true about King Agrippa. He is an expert, and that was his reputation as well, in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to, I beg you to listen <laughs> uh, patiently to me. Paul wasn't going to just try to get off a sentence or two and then get cut off and interrupted, which has already happened, if you recall. When Paul was before the Sanhedrin, the high priest interrupted after one sentence to have him punched in the face in the middle of the courtroom. And then Festus gave him like a paragraph or less to say by way of his testimony. He didn't even get into the details he's going to divulge right now. So he's asked, man, please, you, you are key. You are informed. You're knowledgeable. Just listen to me in my testimony with respect to being Jewish and all things Jewish. It'll become evident and clear to you, Agrippa, that there is no fault with me and I am in keeping with true Jewish religion. That's his goal. Therefore, I beg you to listen. This is incredible courage for him to say that to the king. I beg you to listen to me. Verse 4, so then all Jews know my manner of... There were probably some Jews in that courtroom. The Jews have been accusing him falsely for over two years. And he says all Jews. He says all Jews more than once. All the Jews. Not some of the Jews. Not just a faction of the Jews. Not just a couple people. Not just the elites. I have a reputation. I have a known reputation. I have a universal reputation. Everybody knows about my reputation. They've known it for decades. I'm not some obscure, unknown commodity of a false sectarian cult leader 
that came out of the other side of the world and was sprung upon Jerusalem a week ago or two years ago. And that's why they, that's the way they were trying to pass it off. When the Jews first went to Festus as the new governor in that area, that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to make, Festus didn't know anything about Paul when he got there in 59. He didn't know who Paul was. Who's this guy downstairs in my basement of my palace making noise, banging on the bars? He did not know who Paul was. Same thing with Felix. He didn't know who Paul was. But when the Jews talked to the governors, they tried to misrepresent who Paul was and create the idea that he was a novelty, put a false caricature in their mind, misrepresenting who Paul was. He's not reliable. He doesn't have a history. He hasn't been around. He's not really Jewish. He's not credible. All these lies, and Paul is just going to debunk all of that as not true. Because all the Jews, all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up. All the Sanhedrin, they know who I am. They knew me when I was a kid. They knew when I ran around the neighborhoods. I was born and raised over here close to Jerusalem. And then I was trained and raised in Jerusalem in the synagogues by the best Jewish teacher of the day, Gamaliel. And I also rose in power among the Jews, became a representative of the Sanhedrin, and even became a full-fledged member of the Sanhedrin itself. The highest authority of the Jews in the land in Jerusalem. That's me, and they know it. Festus needed to hear that, because he didn't know that. Herod Agrippa needed to know that if he didn't. So then, verse 4, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation in Cilicia, where he was from, and also at Jerusalem, where he grew up where he grew up and was trained and practiced his faith. Verse 5, since they have known about me for a long time. I'm not a Johnny-come-lately, Festus Agrippa. They've known about me for a long time. They have known about me for decades. They knew me before I became a Christian. So they've known him for over 30, 40 years. They've known about me for a long time. If they are, that's if they're willing to testify, and they're not. Remember, they had no evidence the one time they went before in the court. No evidence. Zero. They are afraid to testify because the judge, the king, or the governor might have follow-up questions to probe. And when you're lying and you get probed, it's hard to cover up. And you forget your previous lies, and then you're exposed as a liar upon cross-examination. Liars always fear to testify. Liars always fear to answer a bunch of questions. That's why liars are experts at avoiding the question, evading the question, changing the question, changing the topic, changing the subject. Practical. So that's what happens when, you're, when you watch an interview of a compromised politician and they get pointed questions. Wait, he didn't answer the question. Well, there's a reason he didn't. So that's what these guys were like. Uh, but Paul says, uh, they knew me. They've known me for a long time, but they're not willing to testify. Verse 5, they know that I, I lived not just as a Jew, but as a Pharisee. A Pharisee. Uh, a pure one. The Pharisees uh, represented the people in the religion of Judaism. They were an authority. Many of the Pharisees were on the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, the ruling body of Judaism. The Pharisees were masters of the Old Testament. The Pharisees were the ones uh, that basically ran the Jewish religion and all of its practices. A Pharisee. There were great qualifications to become a Pharisee. And Paul met all those qualifications. And amazing training that he had to become a Pharisee. You have to be, uh, it's kind of the boys club and he got his way in. And it was the highest mark and level you could re- reach as a Jew in his day. So he was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he says in Philippians. 
So not only was I a Jew, I was a Pharisee. According to the strictest sect of our religion, he was a practicing Pharisee. He practiced religion by the book. He was totally legalistic. He was passionate. He was zealous. He was vociferous and outspoken about his religion. He was highly respected. He was a rising star in the community. That's why they kind of, oh, wow, this guy's, this young buck's got all kinds of zeal and passion and hate for those Christians. Look at him go. Let's unleash him. And they did on the early church. That was Paul. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. A master of the Hebrew religion and the Old Testament. That's who I, that's who I truly am, Herod. And verse six says, and now I am standing on trial. Here's what I'm on trial for. For the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. This is like the third time he said this. What was the hope? The hope was resurrection life. That's why I'm on trial. Because when he went on trial before the Sanhedrin, he said, I am on trial because I believe in the resurrection. And then the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, got angry, turned on him, wanted to kill him. But the Pharisees, who believe in resurrection in the Sanhedrin, said, wait a minute, you can't kill him. Resurrection is in the Old Testament. Resurrection is in the Bible. Resurrection is part of Judaism. We find no fault in Paul saying that he believes in the resurrection. So there was a mistrial there. And so Paul keeps saying that. That's why I'm on trial. I am on trial for belief in the resurrection. And specifically what Paul's, Paul means is not just the doctrine of resurrection, but the risen Lord Jesus Christ, his Savior, which the Pharisees and the Sadducees all rejected. They did not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And Paul's saying, why not? What's so hard to believe about somebody coming back from the grave when the Old Testament scriptures teach that? And what's so hard about believing that the Messiah would die and rise again when scriptures specifically teach that he would? And he's here. He's done it. It's Jesus. Why can't you accept that? So... That is his, his argument, and that's the truth. That's why he's on trial, the rejection of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The hope made by God, verse 7, and the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. This is an interesting and rare phrase where he says, not just, I, I'm not the only one that believes in the resurrection of the dead, in the resurrection of the suffering Messiah, but other Jews believe this as well. Not only other Jews are some Jews, because the Sanhedrin, uh, in the Sanhedrin, the, there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees, who were Jewish, claimed to be Jewish, claimed to believe in the Old Testament, did not believe in resurrection. They claimed to believe in the Bible, but reject the teaching of the Bible. That kind of happens in evangelicalism today. We believe in the Bible, but we don't believe the teaching of resurrection taught in the Bible that we believe in. What? So that's what Paul's going to expose. No, you don't really believe in the Bible. I believe everything taught in the Bible in the Old Testament. You, you Sadducees pick and choose. And they rejected resurrection. That is so sad. For Christians, the greatest hope we have is life after death in Christ, right? You die, and there's not soul sleep. You die, and there's not purgatory. You die if you're a Christian, and you're, you're not tormented by God forever if you die as a Christian. It's not, you don't die and go into oblivion. You don't die and get recycled and come back again in the next life as a cow. That's not the hope of the Christian. That's the greatest promise God has given us, is life after this life, in bliss, in glory, with Christ and the Father and the Spirit, forever and ever, in eternity. And eventually, in a, resur- a perfect, resurrected body, life after the great resurrection hope. That's one of the greatest hopes that the Christian has that is taught in the Bible, resurrection hope, life after death. 
The Sadducees rejected all that. They did not believe in the resurrection after the grave. So the resurrection uh, was rejected by the Sadducees. That's why they were so sad, you see, and that's why they're called Sadducees. Anyway. So maybe that'll help you remember what they rejected. That's what they were known for. The Sadducees were known for what they rejected in the Bible, not what they believed. So I I can't put too much emphasis on the the importance of this doctrine and this truth, the resurrection. I believe in the resurrection, and the only reason I do is because it's in the Bible. Explain the resurrection logically to me. Well, I can't. Well, logically, yeah, okay. God is the creator of the world. He created everything. He's always existed. Nobody created him. He's all-powerful. He's uh, omniscient. He can do whatever he wants. He's totally sovereign. He's always been around. Nobody created him. He's in charge. He's the boss. He has all power. And he has the ability to raise a dead person from the grave because he's a God who can do miracles. That's awesome. That's logical, actually. So there's your logical answer. God is amazing. But getting back to verse 7. So Paul says, this wasn't in a corner. This wasn't by an elite few. This is a basic truth to Judaism, the Jewish religion, to which our 12 tribes hoped to attain. All 12 tribes. This was universal. The universal hope of Old Testament religion, according to the Bible. All 12 tribes. So it wasn't obscure. That's very important. All 12 tribes. This is Judaism 101 according to the Old Testament. As they earnestly serve God night and day. This was the hope. This is what they looked for. Boy, the longer you live in this life, the more as a Christian you should be looking for the resurrection. Because this life is fallen. It is trying. It is miserable. It is cursed. It is. So the idea of the doctrine of resurrection should be sweeter and sweeter as the years go by for the Christian. And then there's those teenagers out there saying, well, I want to get married first. Yeah, that's a good desire. But after you get married and then you live several decades in this cursed earth and you're a Christian, hopefully your desire for Jesus will grow and increase more and more. And the promise is you will be with him for all eternity in heaven through the resurrection. Blessed truth. So that's Paul's history. lays it out. I'm a true Jew. I'm a full-blooded Jew. I'm a complete Jew. I believe in the whole Bible, unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees who pick and choose. Uh, verse 7 in the middle, he says, And for this hope, O King, the hope of the resurrection, and specifically the hope in the resurrection of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who's prophesied in the Scriptures. That's why I was arrested. That's why I'm on trial, O King. And that's why I am being accused by the Jews. And then he can, here's his culmination. With this striking blow, verse 8. Why is it considered incredible or hard to believe? Or literally, why is it impossible to believe? King Agrippa, in light of what I just said, as a Jew, among you people, if God raises the dead. Why is it impossible for Jews to accept that Jesus rose from the dead? When that is a basic, essential doctrine to their Old Testament they profess to believe in. That was a great question. Couldn't be answered by his critics. So that's Paul's history. I'm a Jew, always have been. and They know it. Then there's animosity. Paul's animosity uh, is the next point, 9 through 12. This is animosity. Now he's getting into his personal testimony of what he was like as a true, zealous Jew who hated Jesus and Christians, verse 9 through 12. So then, that's why I put Paul's animosity. Animosity, animus, anger. Anger that is deep-rooted in the soul. Probably the key phrase maybe in this chapter is where he refers to the fury that's the word he uses that he had in his heart verse 11 
being furiously enraged. That's actually scary. Paul, as a non-Christian at one time, as a non-Christian, he was furiously engaged, or he had fury towards Christians. He had fury in his soul towards Christians. You know what? This is the deepest kind of inner hatred that motivates people to hurt Christians. This is what drives someone. How, how could it be that someone would go into a church on the Lord's Day on a Sunday with a gun and mow down and murder 26 people worshiping in a church? Who would do that? Someone who is filled with furious enmity and rage at Jesus Christ would do that. So in early November, as most of you probably know, that's what happened in Te- southern Texas where I used to live, actually. Did a youth camp right by that city where it happened. Little Baptist Church. Where somebody who had furious rage at them. Well, really, furious rage at Jesus. That's what Jesus said. Uh, Let me tell you, apostles, let me remind you, John chapter 7. The world hates me. And then a little later in John, he says, oh, by the way, the world hates you. Furious rage. Let's look at his rage and his animosity. So then I thought to myself as a Pharisee that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. See, there it is. I hate Jesus. Why do people hate Jesus? Well, for a lot of reasons. One of the main ones is is because sinners love their sin. And they don't want to be accountable to a righteous God who will expose their sin, judge them for their sin, and tell them to put their sin aside. They, they want to coddle their sin. Deep in there, I want my sin. I want my vice. Leave me alone, you, you holy God. That's really what's going on in the heart. That's John 3.19. We know John 3.16. John 3.19, not so God loved the world. Sinners so love their sin. And they become furious. If they don't become softened by the conviction of the gospel, they will become hardened and furious in their heart towards God, Jesus, anyone who represents him. That's the fury in the heart. Hostile, hostility towards Jesus. Verse 10. It's not going to get any better, by the way. As time goes on. Verse 10. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints, Christians in prison. I uh, I locked up Christians. Put him in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, the Sanhedrin, as a member probably of the Sanhedrin, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. So he would vote, put a stamp of approval. Yes, we should execute Stephen right here on the spot and stone him to death. Why? Because he's a Christian. And he talks about Jesus. Death penalty. That's what Paul did. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, that's what he did. That was his full-time job. What do you do? Uh, well, I'm a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. What's your job? I go around, hunt down, and kill Christians. That's my job. Bounty hunter. And I punished them often in the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. Men and women, by the way, he said earlier. Tried to force them to blaspheme, but true Christians, they wouldn't. Give me death and I'll see my Savior. And being furiously enraged at them. There it is. That's what motivated him. Paul, how could you do this? Well, I was furiously enraged at them. I hated hated them. I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities all the way up to Damascus, verse 12, So, uh, which would be 200 miles away up north. So while so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority uh, and commission of the chief priests, and so now he would go far and wide to find 
he ran out of Christians in Jerusalem. Man, I've got to go find them now. Got to go hunt them down. And that's exactly what he did, which leads us to his humility and his change. Verse 13 through 18. Let's look at that point number three. He goes from animosity to humility, which only God can impart. So now Paul is heading up to Damascus, up in Syria, up north, north of Galilee, about 200 miles. Long trip. But apparently there's a bastion of Christians hiding there. And so he has an entourage with him and goes up north, probably with uh, on horseback. He's just outside the city of Damascus. It's got a wall around the city. And just as he's approaching the city, and there's the wall, the noonday, 12 o'clock, the sun is in the middle of the sky, bright as can be on that day when this happened. At midday or noon, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven. So not only did he see the light, all of a sudden a light comes out of heaven. It was a blinding light. And it was brighter than the sun. Humans don't even know what that is. We've never seen anything so bright. But a light that came down, and that's God's glory. It was brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground. So this light comes out of heaven. Paul sees it. It blinds him literally. They all fall down onto the ground. There's a voice talking out of heaven. Paul's the only one who understands and can comprehend the voice and what it is saying. Everybody else they heard like thunder. They didn't really know what was going on. They all fell to the ground. Verse 14, and I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect or the Aramaic dialect, So Jesus speaks Aramaic. This is interesting. He didn't speak King James English to Paul. He spoke Aramaic. Why do you speak Aramaic? Because that was Paul's native language. If Paul was Japanese, Jesus probably would have spoken Japanese. But that's why. It was a language he could understand very clearly. In the Aramaic dialect, he said, Saul, 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 Saul. He repeats his name twice. Uh, This is also mentioned in Acts chapter 9 and Acts 22. That that's exactly what Jesus said two times. Saul, Saul. And if you trace that literary refrain through Scripture all the way back to Genesis 22, where God said to Abraham, 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 when he was about to kill his son. Or when God called Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. It's this intimate call from God. Or there's an intimacy of conversation. And some significant event usually happening when God does that. And it's not always good. Peter, Simon, Simon, Jesus would say to rebuke him. Martha, Martha, what are you thinking? So it is emphatic and it's very personal. And it's a significant situation. And that's the case here. And he speaks to him in Aramaic. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You're killing Christians, but really you're persecuting me. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad was, a, they think, a metal strip on the back of a cart that, pulled, that horses pulled or cattle pulled. And it was behind them on the cart. And if they got out of order, if they kicked their legs up, they'd smack it against this metal. And it would hurt. And sometimes they would bleed. And if you had a horse that wouldn't cooperate, he'd keep kicking and he'd just get all bloody. Like against the barbed wire. Quit doing that. Why are you doing that? You're hurting yourself, not me. Quit kicking against the goats. Quit kicking against me. Quit being self-inflicting in terms of your pain. Verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? So he doesn't even know it's Jesus. And the Lord said, this was before he got saved. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Wow. Verse 16. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Get up. Saul, you will become Paul, 
You will no longer persecute me. You will represent me. I will empower you to do so. And you will suffer along the way and be persecuted, he said earlier in his testimony. Verse 17, rescuing you from Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. So many times God would come to the rescue and get him out of prison, get him out of jail, keep him from getting killed over the course of 20 plus years. Verse 18, and I'm sending you to open their eyes, the Gentiles, so that they may turn from darkness to light. I'm sending you to preach the gospel. And when they believe in the gospel, who Jesus is, believe in me that I am the Lord. I am God in the flesh. I came here in fulfillment of the scriptures. I died purposely on the cross, even though I never committed any sins. I was crucified as a criminal, as the Lord Jesus, as God incarnate, according to God's plan on the cross. I died as a substitute for sinners. I absorbed the wrath of God the Father in my body on behalf of sinners. I was buried. I rose again from the dead. I ascended back into heaven. And that's where Jesus is talking from now in a resurrected, glorified, perfected body as the God, man and savior and judge of the world. And Paul, you need to tell people that who I am. I am the judge. I am the creator. They need to repent. They are sinners. I'm the only way to be saved. They can't do anything. It is all by grace, through faith, and the mercy of God. Go and tell everyone that. They need to hear that, Paul. It is the only answer. It's the only solution to all of life's ails. And when they do believe, they'll go from darkness to light, spiritually speaking. They'll go from the domain of Satan into the kingdom of God by believing in Jesus Christ. Those of you who have become Christians, you know that you've experienced that. You are now living in the kingdom of Christ. You once used to be in the kingdom of Satan. I was for 19 years. I didn't even know it. I was in Satan's kingdom and didn't even know. I was a pawn of his and didn't even know it. I look back now and it's, it's shameful. I was deceived. I was blinded. I was darkened. It was futile. There was no hope. And God in his grace and mercy transferred me into the kingdom of his beloved son. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is awesome. Paul, that's what I want you to do. I love my creation. I love people. I am the Savior. I want to rescue them. I want to save them. And here's how it's going to happen. And go proclaim it from the housetop. Give your life for it, Paul. That they may receive the forgiveness of sins. That Man, what a, what a treasure. Forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future. Our memories condemn us. But God offers forgiveness of sins. Total cleansing. Total cleansing. Casting your sins as far as the east is from the west. Not only that, an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. All these blessed treasures. So Paul is humbled by the grace of God and becomes a new man. Paul becomes Saul. And now he continues in his testimony. Let's look at uh, verse 19 to 23. Paul's integrity. Now that God has humbled him, he is a man of integrity. He's not filled with animosity anymore. Those whom he used to hate, he now loves. Those he wanted to kill, he will now give his life for. He became a new creature. That's the promise of Scripture. When you become a true Christian, God makes you a new creature. I mean, really, from the inside out. I mean, a totally new creature. Not perfect. Perfect positionally. But a radical supernatural change of character Spiritually speaking, from the inside out. New desires, new affinities, new loyalties, new loves, new passions. It's a supernatural work of God by believing the gospel. He changes people. He changes people. 
It's a miracle. And that's what happened to Paul. So look at it, verse 19. And so, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. I got saved and I was obedient. I submitted to God. That's why I say integrity. He is full of integrity. Paul's not a liar. He's not a compromiser. And he says it right here. He's not being arrogant. He's being led by the spirit of what to say. And he's telling, he's making his case. I'm just being obedient to the heavenly call. I was a, I'm a prophet. Agrippa, you know about prophets in the Old Testament. They had visions of God at times. I had one. Please believe me. Listen. I've been called by God himself as a prophet through a vision to do a work. That's all I'm doing. I am not guilty. I plead with you. Jesus is alive. That's what he's trying to argue. And I wasn't disobedient to the call. The heavenly vision, verse 20, but I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem when he got saved and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. He had one message. It was the gospel of Christ. Repent, turn from your sin. Repent, turn from your sin. Not only repent and turn from your sin, but after you repent, turn from your sin and you get saved, then from that point on, you perform deeds appropriate to repentance because God changed you and now you can do good works through the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't get, you don't do good works to get saved. You do good works because you are saved. Huge difference. And Christians should be doing good works as they are empowered by the Spirit of God because they have the capacity to do so. Verse 21, for this reason, some Jews seized me or arrested me in the temple because of what I believe, what I'm telling you today, because I'm a prophet of Jesus. I got arrested because of my message. For this reason, some Jews seized me, arrested me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing. So Paul was not prejudiced. He wasn't partial. Oh, those are the rich people. I'll talk to them and befriend them. Oh, those are the poor people. Or those are the dark-skinned people. I'll talk to them. And those are the different colored-skinned people. I won't talk to them. Paul was not like that. Love for every human being made in the image of God, small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. I stick to the scripture. I don't deviate from the scripture. And I believe in the whole scripture. Verse 23, in order that the Christ, and that is that the Christ would suffer. Jesus came. He suffered by crucifixion, according to Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Genesis 315. The book of Zechariah, it's all there, Agrippa, in your Bible. And the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, Psalm 16, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles, Isaiah 46 and Isaiah 49. This is all right out of the Bible. This is not a new message. You should know this. This is the Jewish religion. So Paul's just cranking it up. He's being passionate. He probably went into more detail than is written here. And then that was it. Festus, the pagan Roman, could handle no more. And that's verse 24 and following look at verse 24 paul's sincerity he gets falsely accused while paul was saying this and he's talking to agrippa actually everybody else is just kind of eavesdropping in on the conversation and he's having a heart-to-heart with a respected scholarly jew who should know all this is true and there's this ignorant uninformed clueless compromised roman governor listening in on this is like Man, this is kooky stuff. These Christians are wacko. A man risen from the dead? Visions say what? While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus, the governor, said, in a loud voice. So he interrupts the testimony. Interruption. Paul, you are out of your mind. You are crazy. 
your great learning is driving you mad. Why is Paul best to saying this when he's already heard Paul? Well, because Paul said some new things. Like this man named Jesus crucified and rose again from the dead. And he's the only way to heaven. You need to repent from your sins. And I had a vision. That's why he says he's mad. Verse 25, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. Paul takes him on. For the king knows about these matters. Agrippa knows about these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. These are public truths. Verse 27. King, and then Paul turns his attention back to Agrippa. King Agrippa, do you believe in the Old Testament prophets? Wow, putting him on the spot. Agrippa has to say, yes, I do. Then he has to affirm what Paul said, because it all comes right out of the Old Testament. I know that you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul. He doesn't answer the question. He avoids the truth, see? Because he doesn't want to look like an idiot in front of Festus and his entourage. So he doesn't answer the question. So he's a coward. He's convicted, guilt, he sees truth, he denies it. That is dangerous. So Agrippa changes the topic. Uh, In a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian? Do you think you're going to turn me into a Christian in such a short period of time? Not. 29. And Paul said, I I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. No, I do. I, I want I plead with you to, to believe in Jesus and become a Christian. So then Agrippa, that's it. He doesn't want to have to answer, give a response, be cornered. So he just ends the meeting and just stands up. When the king stands up, everybody else stands up. Meeting is over. King stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man, Paul, is not doing... So the king at least made a a judgment. This man, Paul, is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. So there it is. He's not guilty. I think that's the fourth time that Paul's legally, formally been declared not guilty. Verse 32, And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to caesar but now to caesar he shall go and next week i invite you to come back and now we're going to see the closing of this wonderful book of acts last two chapters as paul in the sovereign providence of god is going to be moved to the destination of rome that's been paul's heart's desire for many years as the gospel continues to spread and now with that we're going to close with communion so if our ushers can go ahead and uh get the elements together and as they come down and give you the plate if you haven't been before if you're a christian you're invited to participate in communion with us also while you're waiting if you could turn to first corinthians 11 and i'm going to read that passage uh and then after the elements are distributed i do want to give you a minute to meditate in your own heart so if you're a christian you're invited to participate in communion uh just grab one cup as it comes along because in there it should have the drink and the bread both in there in that one cup, hold on to it until everybody receives it and until we've had opportunity to to pray and meditate and reflect in your own heart. And then after we've done that, we'll go ahead and partake together. And just some thoughts to contemplate in your own heart. I'll read 1 Corinthians 11 
where Paul gives a summary of the meaning of communion for Christians as given by the Lord Jesus. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, that which I also delivered to you. Since you're Christians, you need to be practicing communion on a regular basis. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed. So part of communion is remembering what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. So just before his death, he got together with his 12 apostles and he transformed Passover into the Last Supper. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread as a symbol. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so I'm, I'm going to die for you very shortly. So that's the main thing we remember at communion. We talk to God in our own hearts. And we became Christians by Jesus' sacrificial death. And that's why historically communion has been called the Eucharist, which means Eucharisto, thanksgiving, thanks to God. And how appropriate in this Thanksgiving season. That's the great... Christians always have something to be thankful for, don't we? Salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is awesome. Forgiveness of all of your sin. Think about how miserable, how much you messed up in the last two weeks. No, don't think about that too long. And if you're a Christian, just think about, man, all those sins are wiped away. Gone. Poof. Maybe not from some who know me or live around me, but from Jesus' point of view, from who it counts the most, God's point of view, wiped clean, drowned in the blood of Jesus. Total forgiveness of sin. Boy, we have much to be thankful for as Christians. That's what communion is for. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrificial death on my behalf, dying for me. Giving your life. Verse 25, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you see new covenant, you should be thinking Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 31, the book of Ezekiel. Hundreds of years before Jesus died, the promise was God said through the new covenant, I will give my people my indwelling Holy Spirit to live in them. The presence of God Almighty literally in you as a Christian. That is awesome. Supernatural power. The very presence of Almighty God. That's what new covenant means. Total forgiveness of sin from the sacrificial death of Jesus and the the Spirit of God living in me. That is cause for celebration. New covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It is all about Jesus. Remember Him, remember Him, remember Him. That is very important. That's a command. Remember Him. So we don't think about ourselves and get all totally introspective and all of our miserable sins and how horrible we are and let your mind meditate on it. It's not remembering you or me. It's remembering Jesus. This is supposed to be a good thing. You are not cause for celebration. Neither am I. Jesus is. Remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus is coming again. Woo! There's another one. I can't go on. There's too much stuff here. So I've given us much to meditate on and celebrate. So I'm just going to give you a minute now to have communion with your sweet Savior. And if you would there, just close your eyes and I'm going to close us in a final word of prayer before we have the privilege to sing our, our last song. To our wonderful, merciful Savior. So would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for this day, another Lord's Day that you have established for the benefit of your people. 
Thank you that we have been able to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship you, but also to encourage one another, motivate one another to love and good deeds. Thank you for allowing us to learn continually from your word. And through your Holy Spirit, help us to glean and apply truths that we've been reminded of. And also, we just thank you for communion, for giving us a tangible and physical reminder of your greatness and your love for us by giving your life as a Savior, that we might be redeemed and have hope in this life. We give you all the glory and praise, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.